Love Talk Radio. And welcome to the program. Chuck Moore speaks Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'd like to welcome aboard our first affiliate, Blog Talk Radio. Obviously, the story this afternoon is and remains uh, as from yesterday as well. The terrible, brutal murder of our ambassador in Benghazi, Libya, and three other personnel there. Uh, to help us discuss this matter, we're joined by Rabbi Brad Hirschfeld. Rabbi Hirschfeld is an author, radio and TV talk show host, and president of CLAL, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. Uh, Rabbi Hirschfeld, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Rabbi, you've written on the topic of religious violence uh, going back in history. Would you describe this particular instance of yesterday, uh, September 11th, as an act of religious violence? I absolutely would. In fact, I think one of the most dangerous things we can do right now is, especially those of us who are people of faith, is shrink from the fact that this is religious. I'm a little technical problem there. No um, problem. I want to be absolutely clear, especially people of faith, cannot yes. shrink from the fact that this is religious violence. When people invoke the name of God, whether we approve of it or not, when people invoke the name of God, when thousands of people mobilize around their faith in God and act violently, that is religious violence. I wish it wasn't so. I wish it didn't happen. But pretending otherwise is dangerously naive. I want to be also clear. Anyone who equates the individual acts or the acts of a minority within a tradition that's been around for a thousand or more years with the entirety of that tradition, if the first group is dangerously naive, the second group that does that is just genuinely hateful and has no, nothing to contribute. Uh, Rabbi Hirschfeld, my, my take on this is one that's evolving, and it is somewhat contrary to uh, conventional assumptions here. And that is that I don't think it's, it's simply a matter of religious violence. I think it, that it is more... Uh, secular violence, the uh, the agendas of people who are seeking uh, to, uh, for whatever reason, gain power, gain, you know, gain attention, uh, gain political advantage, and doing it in the name of religion. And when they do that, they are corrupting and perverting the religion in question. Well, the funny um, thing about that is yeah. that everyone always says that when someone uses a faith in a way they don't approve of. What I would suggest is that power and politics are a part of classical religious life. They always have been. The idea that religion, by definition, gets to be pure and clean and good and sit on the side is, in fact, one of the things that allows people to co-opt it and use it for such deadly and grotesque purposes as we've seen in the last 48 hours. Well, I think that, um, first of all, I, not, I wouldn't say that's true of all religions. I think in this case I'm referring to the monotheistic religions, which, of course, is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And that in, the, in that sense, I wonder if this is not a situation where you have people who are using the, um, 
the essentially religious doctrines that are involved, which is a belief in a creator of the universe, and then imposing uh, kind of human qualities there, anthropomorphic qualities, if you will, and claiming that they somehow speak for God. Uh, well, that's a really interesting thing. I think that's separate from anthropomorphism, because I think actually all of these traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, tragically have killed people in their name and have members who have been killed because of what they believe. So I don't think this is a problem that's endemic to any particular tradition. I think it's something that we all bear, though you've got to be honest. Right now, if we were to look at the world and ask, does one of these traditions have a bigger problem with this than anyone else? The answer is yes, it is Islam. The truth is that is not an anti-Muslim comment. Muslims kill more Muslims than they kill Christians or Jews put together. So, in fact, this is an internal question more than anything else, which is why when Muslims complain, oh, you're anti-Muslim if you say this, I don't understand that, because the truth is if you want to save more Muslim lives, you have to address this. But let's go to the second thing you said, which is absolutely correct and truly critical. When people confuse what they think God wants with certainty, that that is the mind of God, it always goes badly. Right. And what we really need to be able to create, which we don't have right now, is a culture of deep, for those who want it, deep religious passion and commitment with genuine modesty and humility. Right now the world tends to divide between the humble and the modest, who are out of touch with a certain kind of zeal that a lot of people seem to want in their lives, and the zealous who actually cross the line from zeal and passion and commitment into genuine fanaticism and absolutism, and that is always deadly, no matter how well-intentioned it begins. Okay, my guest is Rabbi Brad Hirschfeld. You're welcome to join the conversation. 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. Rabbi Hirschfeld has a column up on Washington Post this afternoon. Um, Brad, I think that uh, this is also a situation in which Islam of the three monotheistic faiths, the three major monotheistic faiths, is a little bit more vulnerable than Judaism and Christianity to sort of this earthly militant approach. And, and that has something to do with the founder of the faith, that being the prophet Muhammad, who was also a political and military leader toward the end of his life he, at the at the time of his death, he and his army controlled most of Arabia. And toward the end of the Quran, there's a lot of language in there about the physical conquest of the entire world. I don't think that that exists in Judaism, nor does it exist in Christianity. In the case of Judaism, the, uh, the, the, the secular claim is very, very modest. It's that tiny and inscrutable speck of land that exists between the uh, Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And in the case of Christianity, it has more to do with a, a personal, uh, you know, missionizing personal relationship between the individual and Christ. Well, I get that's where we are now, but let's go slow, because the truth is the Jewish tradition is founded in the Hebrew Bible. The last book of the first five books of Moses, Deuteronomy, is largely about the quite violent and political takeover of the land of Israel. Right. And in fact, there is a rich and long political tradition, sometimes occasionally very violent, within Jewish history. It's just that it's so distant that we forget that. 
And one can't meaningfully speak about the history of the last 2,000 years in the West without talking about Christian political power. It's well, a Rabbi, relatively me... new thing. So it turns out that right yeah. now where we are in the world, Islam has a bigger challenge. I think it's less because of what's in their books, because as, I, as we can look at, each of the monotheistic traditions has more than enough footnotes to justify not only use of political power, but the abuse of political power, and has done so at different times. The difference, I think, is that for a variety of reasons, Jewish tradition, in part because of its own choosing and in part because of historical circumstance, starting around the time of Jesus, about 2,000 years ago, went through a tradition in which it decided to leave the field of political power. And then when modern Zionism reintroduced Jewish national claims on the Holy Land, it did so in the context of deep respect for Western-style democracy, in which the separation of church and state was largely respected. The Christian Reformation, about 50, you know, about 500 years ago or 1,500 years into the Christian venture, made a lot of those same decisions. And especially in America, we are the inheritors of a rich process which allowed people to claim faith deeply but separate religious influence from religious political power. In fact, I would argue there is no country that does it better in the world than the United States. Where I think we are in the history of Islam, not accidentally, is at about the 1,500-year mark in the evolution of that tradition. This is that Reformation going on. So it may well be that actually at about the 1,500-year mark, as it was for ancient Jews, and then later as it was for medieval Christians, and now for Islam, traditions have to look at themselves and ask, since all of them in some measure began as political movements, Remember, the beginning of the Jewish people is a slave rebellion led by Moses out of Egypt. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven, and most historians of late antiquity agree that that kingdom of heaven was offered to the people of the Holy Land as an alternative to the kingdom of Rome. It was a political message. And then at some point, each of these faiths has to decide what is the role of political coercion. Will our traditions be traditions that respect difference, that respond not only to democracy as a kind of mob rule, but a kind of rights-driven system that protects all people, including those who may not agree with us? Those are the big questions right now before the global Muslim community. And I think that's what's so you know, concerning, because it seems very much that they are questions that remain unanswered, or as I would say, the Arab Spring is now going to be harvested this autumn, and it's not clear what's going to be brought in. Okay, my guest is uh, Rabbi Brad Hirschfeld, um, the, the, the president of Kalal um, National Jewish Center for Learning. Um, Brad, I'm trying to get, I'm, I'm bringing myself sort of circuitously to a to a point here, which is a theory of mine, and. Um, I'll respond to a couple of things you've said leading up to that. The first one is that in the issue of the uh, Jewish experience, in the issue of the Torah, the uh, the violence there, the war there, deals very specifically with a specific time and a specific place, and that is Israel and the Canaanites, and that is not – in other words, it's not a global idea. It is not something where – 
the Jews were commanded, the children of Israel were commanded to conquer the world. They were simply told by God to go through Moses to that little land that God showed us and that that was where they were to establish their their kingdom on earth. And mm-hmm. uh, within the context of that kingdom, absolutely the system was both political and religious. It was uh, to be a, you know, a godly people. And uh, so, so, yes, I mean, the violence in the Torah deals specifically with people that no longer exist. Um, and as far as the issue of the Amalekites goes, that's not a people. That's more of a, an act. It's people who engage in uh, activity that violates the basic um, rules of engagement that are laid out in the Torah when it comes to war. Uh, but as for the Christians, they're not commanded physically to conquer the world, although they have, and they, they've done that in the name of Christianity, even in the 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, the, the colonists, the British, the French, they conquered large nations and populous nations in Africa and Asia in the name of Christendom. But but the point is that those are not, that's not really, you know, that runs contrary to the Christian teaching. And I think that the best example of the Christian teaching is actually the United States, because here we have freedom of religion, we do respect all religions, and that religion, faith in the Christian idea is something that people arrive at voluntarily as a matter of within their own heart. I think that's the more close expression. The problem with Islam, though, is that, and again, I say this in the context that I don't think it's as bad as, from a religious standpoint as we might think conventionally, it's that Islam does indeed call for a world Conquest. I mean, it calls for the complete submission of the entire planet physically, not not spiritually. I mean, both, but they do call for their people to go out and subdue the world either through force or through uh, subversion. And and that's that's the problem. But I want to get to the present crisis. Um, I think that Islam, even in that context, has been corrupted by Western forces. In other words, that Islam was a balance. The first part of the Quran was very much like the Torah. It was very much like the New Testament. It dealt with moral codes. It dealt with ethical codes. It dealt with a belief in one God. It was tolerant. But the second part of the Quran is more militant and it's more earthly. It's more secular in a way. They want world conquest. And that the two parts tended to balance each other out I think what's happened in our modern era, and I I particularly point to the late 19th century and the 20th century, and again, this is my own sort of unique theory here, is that you had certain influences from the secular West that isolated the second half of the Quran throughout the first half, magnified that second half, and created a very violent view that was divorced from the moral side of things. And in my opinion, the Western influence was both communism and Nazism and their infiltration into the Middle East, both spiritually and literally. And we know, for example, that the mullahs that are surrounding the Ayatollah Khomeini, they were trained in Moscow. I mean, these people are communists. You know, they were you know, dressed in Islamic garb. I mean, this... Well, let's yeah, let's go slow, if I could. There was a, there's a lot of stuff here. There's a historical recreation I'm not sure we agree about. There's a present analysis I'm not sure we agree about, though I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I think that the separation, which always breaks into religion that we like and then infiltration from outside when we don't, I think is a little bit misguided. 
Um, and certainly when you look at the analysis of these different traditions, all of them at different times have talked about domination. Though you are certainly right, even at its most militant in biblical Israelite times, ancient Israelites never had visions of global domination. That may well be because actually in antiquity, really no one had notions of global domination because the world was largely any bigger than a couple of hundred kilometers from your central temple. Certainly most of the last 2,000 years in Christian history, whether it's good Christianity or bad Christianity, I guess Christian theologians would have to answer, was certainly the same kind of marriage of global conquest and religious faith. What I think you're pointing to that is certainly correct is that each of these traditions has within them both moral ethical mandates that transcend politics and political aspirations. And when those two halves are not in conversation with each other, do mm. not create balance with each other, these traditions become quite toxic. And that right now, for at least a significant swath of the global Muslim community, it seems like that conversation between the most humanitarian, global, impulses within the tradition and the political and power-driven impulses within the tradition have lost touch with each other. Why that happened, I think, is related to what you're talking about, communism and Nazism, though I don't think it's directly a result of it. I think what happens is that when any people returns to newfound power, it finds it difficult to wield ethically. In fact, it's no accident, and I know this world well, because as a teenager and in my early 20s, it was my world. The most violent, the most militant parts of contemporary Israeli culture is a very narrow band of messianically inclined uh, settlers. I was one of them. So I appreciate, by the way, I was well-intentioned. I meant well. Mm -hmm. But the reintegration of power after that much powerlessness and our own biblical tradition was overwhelming. What I think has happened in Islam, and it is connected to the West, though I don't think it's simply communism or Nazism or what the left will talk about as American and British and French imperialism, I don't care which ism, is that a tradition which had relatively little political power for a very long time is now reintegrating its faith traditions and its political traditions. And what it really has to appreciate is when that reintegration happens and politics and power outstrip the moral and the ethical mandates of the community, including how it treats those beyond the community, they will come to no good. Not just for you and me, not just for America and the West and Israel. They will come to no good for themselves. Because as I said, right now, Muslims kill more Muslims in this perverse dance than they do anyone else. Mm -hmm. And so really the stakes here is can a tradition which has returned to new levels of power harness its faith in a way in which it actually nurtures more life than it currently is? And that's a real open question and sure. one they're going to have to answer. Okay, my guest is uh, Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. He is the... Um the president of Klal National Jewish Center for Learning. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. 
uh, Rabbi, I would be the last person to to challenge a a, a world renowned rabbi such as yourself. Challenge away. <laughs> Clergy but, think uh, far too much of themselves, and this is way too interesting a conversation. And your theories oh, okay. are fascinating. You're smart, so go ahead. Thanks, but but I think that. Uh, the ancient Israelites did deal with world order movements. The Pharaoh represented that. Even Nimrod represents that in the book of Genesis. He tried to conquer the world by going to the top of the Tower of Babel. Uh, there have been world order movements in every generation from those days till the present time. And I think that the uh, that Judaism as a faith and its offshoots, Christianity and Islam, have the reason that they've endured for thousands of years is because they generally present a system of moral and ethical understanding that has put restraint on this darker side of human nature, which is to conquer the world and to rule over others. And uh, my point is that Judaism and Christianity are less uh, vulnerable to these tendencies than Islam, but they do have their, their diversions in history and and that those should be noted and that the problem of uh, of violence and uh, it is a secular problem it's not these re, these three religions have served as a um, as a buffer to that as a restraining influence to I, that. I love I that vision but again the the idea that if it's violent it's not religious i it just doesn't it just doesn't wash i mean here we're going to have to agree to disagree but the historical record is too blood soaked by the way i want to be clear the mm -hmm. only thing that we know about the violence done in the name of religion, and here I suspect we will agree, and where the secularists are absolutely wrong, actually stupidly wrong. Again, it doesn't mean I'm opposed to people being atheists. You want to believe or disbelieve what you want, go ahead. But right. when people say that you know more people have died in the name of God than anything else, the one thing to remember is that actually, in the 20th century, because of communism, because of Stalinism, Maoism, and because of Nazism, we managed to murder more human beings in 100 years in the name of no God right. than in 1900 earlier years in the name of whatever God you called upon. No, I mean, so what I think we're going to agree about is that any yeah. system which doesn't know how to balance encouraging people toward very big goals and also putting brakes on teaching measures of humility, teaching measures of modesty, whether it's political modesty, intellectual modesty, spiritual modesty, cannot be a healthy system. I love your description of what these traditions do at their best. Well, but I well, think because all, precisely I, also, I believe in a tradition, I've got to be honest, what we know about religion is it can do the very best and the very worst. The best metaphor I can give you for any faith is that any faith is like a fire. It can cook your dinner and warm your home, or it can burn down the house and kill all the inhabitants. The issue is not what's in the faith. It's in how it's wielded by the faithful. Right, or how it's corrupted by the faithful. Or, Again, corrupt or... I don't use because it means there's a pure version. For me, there's no pure version. The faith, okay. it, it's like Forrest Gump said, stupid is as stupid does. The traditions are as their believers claim. That's why it's really important that people who keep saying, no, this has nothing to do with Islam, because they're afraid people will say it's all about Islam, are doing a disservice. Those of us, because it is connected to the tradition. It's no, it is, and I, and I want to be clear. I'm and not we've got to be clear that. that it is rooted. It's not the whole tradition. 
I believe with all my heart that Islam is a faith which could burn down the world or save a lot of the world. Now its members have to decide which road they will take. Well, firstly, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that Islam doesn't have an aspect to it. My, my point is that oh, that oh, no, I know, I know, absolutely, I know. Has, has been uh, magnified. And I'm, nor am I suggesting that secular nations are necessarily you know, unrestrained or evil. I mean, the United right. States is a secular nation. Right. And yet we also have a we're also one of the most religious uh cultures. Well in right. History. What's interesting is I actually believe in this regard the United States is the single most important model for the twenty first century. And I and I right. get I get it. People say, Oh, there he goes again, he's being overly patriotic and blah no I'm not. The truth is we oh, live yeah, in a world right. largely d- divided between radical secularists who in their radical secularism actually give rise to a lot of problems, including fundamentalism religiously, and radical religionists who want to kill everyone who doesn't agree with them. The well, only here, model the world right. has for a deeply here. religious body politic that truly respects all people's rights fully and richly, from the most radically secular to the most deeply faithful, the one who does it best, right here in the United States. Now, here's where I might take a little issue with you. I mean, the radical secularists of the 20th century, as you mentioned, were the, the Nazis and the communists. Yes. The, uh, both of which were byproducts of the Europe of the darker side of the European Enlightenment. Both of which I yeah. would claim are socialist, and both of which are uh, turn their back on uh, the divine. They turn their back on received wisdom, and you have a situation where man has uh, a small clique of men usually have gathered power in their hands, and they wield it and think that they're doing good because they believe they know better than the rest of us, and they can change literally change human nature. I mean, like uh, they say in the in the uh, book of Genesis, you can be like gods, you know, I mean, uh, which is, of course, the uh, claim in the Garden of Eden. I mean, communism is the, old, is the second oldest religion in the world. I mean, this is something that was said by Whitaker Chambers right. in his book Witness. But uh, I want to ask you, I just want to switch gears a little sure. bit here. You were involved with the settler movement, the so-called settler movement in Judea and Samaria. I was. Why do you think they were violent? I mean, it seems to me that there are people who are trying to live in the land that God showed us, you know, and they're dealing, you know, are they aggressing against the Palestinian Arabs? It's, let, let's not talk about they, because, again, it's not monolithic. Sure. Right. If you're asking me, is there a segment of the settlement community to this day, and was I a part of such a segment 25 years ago, 30 years ago, I was a kid, that was violent? that subverted the laws of our own state, that stole weapons from our own army, Mm -hmm. that engaged in vigilante violence? The answer is yes. Now, on the upside, it was a relatively small group, overwhelmingly responded to negatively by the Israeli population, including those who may have been sympathetic politically, was punished legally, so in other words, I want to be very clear. Are there parallels? Yes. Do they go very far? No. You could never have seen mobilized thousands and thousands of people burning things. I mean, it was just unthinkable. But did right. it exist? Yes. Does it still exist? Yes. Am I still deeply concerned that in the last month it is kids who are largely raised in the Israeli version of the same religious community I raised my own children in? who engaged in vigilante violence against innocent Palestinians? I absolutely am. Do I, 
do I then say I, I'm off the hook because it turns out Palestinians and their extremists have murdered countless more people than what these kids did, who didn't murder anyone, but they beat on two people? Of course I don't say that they're morally equivalent. But again, each community has a moral obligation to police itself. So right. I do have to pay attention to it. I do have to admit it. And in fact, what I would say is I would beg religious and political leaders from the Muslim world to stand up with that same degree of self-reflection today. I would beg them not to spend one more moment on air or in print criticizing a movie, which we agree is grotesque, unless they're first going to talk about criticizing the crowds that are burning tires and flags, and at the worst of them, murdering people who represent the U.S. government. Well, you know, I want to get to that in a minute, but I, I just want to talk a little bit more about the uh, the, the uh, Jews living in, in Judea and Samaria. Um, you, you know, it seems to me that what you're talking about, first of all, were you a part of Rabbi Kahana's movement? I was, but the truth is I will say that even um, I had a split with Rabbi Kahana, who I was quite close to actually, uh, yep. In 1981, uh, my home from much of 81 to 83 was the Jewish community of Hebron, which may be the single most disputed piece of territory on the planet. I was sure. one of about 65 Jews living amongst 60,000 Palestinians, and we were there because, as I would have told you then, God said so, and right. reality be damned. And I think that's really the issue. When you have a view that cannot take full account of the political and social context in which you live, even if your cause is good, it cannot be just. Well, well, let me just focus on that for a minute, because I think that God did tell us to live in Hebron. And it doesn't mean that Palestinian Arabs can't also live in Hebron. Um, and in fact, I think that if the Palestinian Arabs were more accepting of their Jewish neighbors, then there might not have been a conflict. And also on a political standpoint, the community was massacred in 1929 due to the operations of the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. I mean, this was an indigenous Jewish community that went back who knows how many centuries. So I guess Listen, it, it was my uh, home, and I'm well aware of it, but here's the thing. We're not going to create yeah. the future by debating the past, so I don't really do this. And by the mm -hmm. way, the moment you say, I think God said so, the reason it's not helpful, even if I were to agree with you, yeah. is that that's exactly the argument which the other side uses in nefarious and deadly ways. The God said so argument, that's when I said, even if the cause is good, it cannot be just when it doesn't take into account social and political reality. The social and political reality I know is that if I want to create a future, in which my grandchildren, because my nieces and nephews, they're already putting on the same uniform from my generation. If mm -hmm. I want our grandchildren not to have to do that, or at least do it for fewer years, it right. means I'm going to have to stop debating the past and start asking what kind of future we want to create. I have no problem and still feel deeply attached to Hebron, but I know that debating who has a right to be there will not create a secure future for the state of Israel that I hope will exist as a Jewish democratic state forever. Well, it we may talk feel about, good from here as a theoretical conversation, yeah, I understand that. but and it will I, not be, create a safer, more sustainable future. You know, and I feel really kind of queasy about talking, talking about this because I'm not going to be out there getting my legs blown off with a mine 
trying to, uh, you know, guard, the, guard, guard Gaza or the West Bank. So I, I just want to say that and, and put it into context. But um, just and, and to just comment on the religious conflict, um, I have quotes from the Quran which recognize Israel as a Jewish state, which will call for the Jews, the people of the book, to return to the land that that, mm-hmm. that they were that they were to go to as a way to bring about the Messiah. So, I actually don't think that it is a conflict in Islam. I I call for Muslims to to uh, recognize uh, Israel as a Jewish state and to participate in it for religious reasons. But putting aside the religious, I want to talk about today and mm-hmm. the future. I mean, I don't think that what, what you seem to be suggesting, and I, I would be the last – I'm not trying to put words in, in your mouth here, Rabbi Hirschfield, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, you, you seem to be a supporter of the so-called two-state solution. I mean, do you think that Israel should be – do you think that there's going to be peace and democracy and, and uh, a great future if Israel – evacuates uh, the West Bank? I, I don't want to suggest what it should look like, because that's not appropriate. But like most Israelis, and actually the majority of those who support the state of Israel, certainly in, in the Jewish community, the idea that a two-state solution of some kind is the only way forward is pretty much agreed upon. And I want to be clear. I say that with no expectations about what that other state needs to be, because frankly, It is not my issue. What I care about is the durable future of a Jewish democratic state that is strong enough to defend itself against all comers, that is able and willing and ready to do so when needs to be, and can return to the business of governing itself and achieving its fullest aspirations. It has nothing to do with whether or not that's the ideal situation. It has nothing to do with whether or not that's an historically fair situation. It has nothing to do with whether or not I think that's what God wants in some cosmic future. It has to do with what can be achieved in the most practical way right now to get the greatest level of security, physical, demographic, and moral, for the state of Israel. And that's really the goal. Everything else to me is a deflection. And the truth is, I would say the same thing to Palestinians. Until they decide they care more about creating a future in whatever state becomes their state than they do about destroying the state of Israel, they will have no future. No one can create a future animated by a hatred of the other side. You can only create it when you're fully in touch with your own aspirations and work primarily on achieving those, not because you want to get rid of someone else. And I think that's, you know, that's that's really the internal conversation the Palestinian people have to have and decide in much the same way that when the state of Israel was founded, people had to decide, was this going to be the state defined by biblical borders about which many of us dreamed? Or would it simply be the state we were given, now let's make the best of it? If you worry too much about what you don't get, you end up with nothing at all. If you take what you can and make the best of it, you can actually end up with a pretty glorious history, which I think Israel has had. By no means do I think it's a perfect state, but I think there's a lot there to be proud of, and it's not an accident that in the entire region there is no country that resonates more fully with the kind of values most Americans hold dear at home. Okay, my guest is Brad Hirschfeld. He's a rabbi, president of CLAL, National Jewish Center for Learning. Um, I, I think what you're describing, Brad, is something that most, if not all, practically all, Israelis and Jews agree with. I mean, in terms of a stable future and 
and Israel, you know, fulfilling its mission, put aside spiritually and religiously, but, you know, as a homeland for the Jewish people uh, around the world. But also, which is this, when you talk about the uh, the Palestinian Arabs going through this internal dialogue, I don't see that happening. I, to my way of thinking, it's not. I'm talking here. Never mind the religious side of it. Which yeah, I, no, I, I understand. You know, I've interviewed a lot of people on the Palestinian side. I've interviewed Asaf Safia, who was on an American tour. He's a member of the Palestinian Authority, mm-hmm. and he came here to charm Americans. And he's as a moderate. And the, uh, the 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 his presentation was so extreme, and so unbelievable. I mean, I I don't even. I'm sure you can imagine what I'm talking about here. I don't even want to start. I mean, to, for starters, I mean, the, you know, the the return so-called of millions of Palestinian Arabs into Israel itself, you know, as even a precondition before they start mm-hmm, negotiating. Mm-hmm. And again, no, this look, is what I what I think is that we're further. Authority. I think we're further along than we were a generation ago, and there's a long way to go. I, and I think that anyone who doesn't understand that we're further along than we were a generation ago actually doesn't understand the Palestinian condition of today. And anyone who thinks that we're at a good end point so that we can resolve all this, you know, in the next year or two is insane. I think this is gonna this is a generational problem. It's going to take generations that need to be born into it and grow into it. And I think what we've seen, and it's not surprising, it's the typical pattern, those, at least for an ethical state, and Israel is an ethical state, that those with greater power mature into the possibility of compromise more quickly. The the state of Israel has largely done that. Uh, Not perfectly, and again, I have real differences in part with the current government, but it doesn't matter. As a body politic, it's done it in pretty good ways and it's pretty clear. I think the Palestinians are still wrestling with that. And I think when you mention the right of return, that is really the question, because in the end, if the right of return is pushed through, which it won't be, because they understand that's simply code for ending the state of Israel as a Jewish state. And that's really what they have to decide. If they want to destroy Israel and the existence of a Jewish state, then it's going to make it difficult to have any kind of resolution. If what they want is territorial compromise, which in, which creates a viable, secure, modern state of Palestine for Palestinians, alongside a viable, secure Jewish democratic state of Israel, then it's possible. As I said, I think the Palestinian community is further down that road than they were a generation ago, and they have a ways to go before they'll be able to really decide for themselves which it is. And when they do a solution will be found. In fact, the irony is most people have a strong sense of what the borders and boundaries of that state will look like. The issue is, can both sides be equally proud of what they will have? The state of Israel has basically said, as imperfect as it may be, the answer is largely yes. The Palestinian community has said, as imperfect as it may be, the answer is largely no. Until they also come to a yes on that question of a non-maximal but truly viable Palestine, it's going to be hard to make peace. When they do, I think it'll be relatively easy. Yeah, but they, uh, as of today, they have not. And um, I think it was, was it not Abba Eben, the uh, the great uh, foreign minister and founder of Israel, who said that when asked by I think Time Magazine, when did he think there could be peace between Israel and the um, and the Arab countries? And and I think back then there was no Palestinian Arab, so to speak. He said it would take about a thousand years. 
Yeah, well, the nice thing is I tend to be, and maybe it's because I've lived to see many more triumphs than he did, and frankly mm-hmm. have lived through far less trauma because of my age. Uh, I don't think it'll take a thousand years. I think actually that we have a shot at living to see it. I certainly believe our kids can live to see it. But again, it's I think there are things we can do to also help push things in that direction. And I think that always, when you're ever, whenever that process is unfolding, all the parties to a conflict can always be helping to improve things. But at the end of the day, no final solution can be reached until each community in that conflict decides for itself that accepting a viable alternative is better than holding out for some maximal claim which requires the destruction of the other side, because that's simply never going to happen. Right, and you were there, so you have obviously an advantage. I mean, I've visited, but I've I've, I've not spent years there. Uh, to in terms of uh, an understanding of the uh, the Palestinian Arab side, from my perspective here in Boston, Massachusetts, looking mm-hmm. at, you know from afar, I don't see any evidence to suggest that the the Palestinian Arab side has changed one iota. And I, of course, the uh, one piece of proof on that is what happened in Gaza, which of course was a disaster. But I want to talk about what's happened in uh, Benghazi. Uh, that that being the uh, topic of your column and right. uh, the issue in the forefront of every American's mind, um, they uh, there were the riots and the attack on the American embassy in Benghazi and in Cairo. <clears throat> there are reports of now tensions at embassies in much of the rest of the Arab world and even yep. in some non-Arab countries. Um, obviously, the one the, the attack in Benghazi was the very worst, in that um, Ambassador Chris Stevens was brutally murdered. I understand his body was dragged through the streets and stripped. Who knows what else happened there? You know, it's probably worse than that. And, uh, I mean, what in the world is behind that kind of hatred exactly? I mean, what did, what did the United States do to these countries that would make, make, make them hate us like that? After all, these are sovereign nations. No one is threatening their sovereignty. There's 24 sovereign Arab nations that many of which are oil wealthy and mineral wealthy. They've got great populations. You know, they're, they're one of the largest blocks of power in the world. Yeah. Why would they be taking, bloodying America's nose? I think the first thing that we have to be very, very clear about, and I know you believe this, there is nothing that the United States did no matter how angry someone might choose to be at the United States for God knows what, there is nothing the United States did that could possibly justify the murder of Ambassador Stevens or the three other innocents who were murdered with him. That's right. Nothing. I get it. We can have all the conversations with all the, quote, anti-imperialist people. Ah, Fine, we can do nothing. And in fact, that has to be a real red line in the conversation and has to be pointed out over and over again. When people are murdered simply for the so-called crime of being American, there is no issue of justification. Murder is murder. Four people were murdered. And I think it's really important. We can, we really can and should talk about underlying causes and what provokes rage and the role of religion and newfound power. And I actually believe all of that needs to be discussed in order to help make things better. But only if the caveat is 
four people were murdered. The sovereign territory of the United States was attacked because that's what embassies are. Sure. Mm-hmm. And absolutely nothing can justify that. And it's really important that that be the starting place for any of the conversations because absent that caveat, understanding starts to become explanation and explanation starts to become excuse. And that is a very dangerous road to go. Um, I think that's really, really important. I think that the causes for this kind of rage range from religious traditions that are being used in incredibly toxic ways, the ease with which people seek to blame others for their own shortcomings, the incredibly pressurized nature of life in most of the world, and we can go on and on and on. So I think there are, quote, ways we can understand what happened, but there is nothing to excuse or explain away right. when people are murdered. Oh, no, nothing absolutely not. And, and I even think most of the world's moderate Muslims agree with that. I mean, it's a... Including the yes. government of Libya. I mean, there's obviously there's no justification for this, um, but I want to bore in a little bit more tightly here. What exactly are these people about? I mean, you say that they have religious traditions, they say political traditions. I mean, what, what's going? Who you know? It, it looks to me, especially in the case of um, of Benghazi, this was a planned thing. Apparently, apparently the Obama administration has said that they think so that this was not something that was spontaneous. There was information to indicate that, that this was coming down the pike and yep. that it was planned for September 11th. Um, you know, I mean, we could broaden the spectrum and say what was in the mind of the September 11 hijackers. I mean, exactly why are they planning these sorts of assaults on the United States? I mean, what is the United States doing? And what do they think the United States is doing? And who is telling them this? <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm laughing because it, it's 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 very hard to give a clear and sane response to what is an insane circumstance. Right. Um, but they but, but, but we what, know what that people choose insane things. I think what's and again there is no good explanation for it, but clearly there are levels of rage that are being mobilized as expressions of faith in unprecedented ways. Well, what are they? I mean, in other words, what is the – I'd like to get to exactly what is it that these people believe. I mean, I, I want to know specifically, if you have any information on that, what is it that they're being told that justifies a war against the United States? I mean, I you think know, at the end of the day, the United States probably represents the single greatest claim to the fear-based argument held out by all religious fundamentalists, which is that you have to choose between democracy and faith. We are living proof that a rights-driven, individually respecting, coexisting, democratic community can be a place in which people of deep and abiding faith can live well and live faithfully. And I think what's deeply scary to any religious absolutist or coercionist 
is the existence of a model which says no one tradition should have that kind of dominance or coercion, coercive power. And the idea that absent that dominance or coercive power, the tradition we love will fail. And we're living proof that that's not true. The United States of America is living proof that actually many faiths can and do live well and richly, successfully and freely, and there is no centralized cores of religious authority. There is no notion that for faith to exist, it must be hateful or hostile to all those who don't share the faith. Right. I think really the issue is no one particular political act or policy, which is why when people say, well, if we just did A or B, wouldn't they be happier? No. I think this is about something far deeper. I think I this think is about the fact that we are engaged in the single boldest experiment, politically anyway, maybe in human history, and certainly in the last thousand years. And I think for people who don't know how to integrate the the bold success, and again, we're not perfect, but the right. bold success of this experiment, it terrifies them, and the response of the terrified is terrorism. No, I, I look, I think you're absolutely right. You're touching upon something that is very much at the root of their anti-American feeling. It's also why they dislike Israel, I think, in that in the midst of their own nations, which do have a history of being very authoritarian and uh, theocratic in, in, the, in the political sense, yeah. you had a, a, a relative democracy developed, which was a Jewish state, but at the same time, which allowed the dimmies, you know, the people that um, had second-class citizenship in the Islamic world, those being Arab Jews, reach uh, equal rights, or at least relative equal rights. That's not to say Israel's perfect in that way. Right. But nevertheless, I think this posed a huge threat to uh, the Arab world. And uh, and when I say threat, I don't mean military. I mean ideological or uh, ideological threat. And that's the same threat that comes from the United States. But at the same time, we, you know, we in the United States and in Israel respect sovereignty. We understand that if Iran wants to be a theocracy, as long as they don't become so abusive to human rights that we can't tolerate it, we're willing to go the extra mile to allow them to conduct their own affairs. Nobody's threatening them. I don't right. think anybody wants to conquer Iran. Uh, you know, if, if they go overboard, then yes. I mean, you have to. I mean, any sovereign, you know, you, for moral reasons. That's why we had to take out Nazi Germany. But uh, at the same time, you know, they're not being threatened by us, and yet they feel that they need to, uh, in, in a sense, export their their um, their faith to the rest of the world. You know, that's that's what I, I talk about. This idea of this world order vision they have. Yeah, look, I think you're right. I think that the threat that we constitute, such as it is, is a, an ideological or conceptual threat. Because if you don't fundamentally believe in the extension of human freedom beyond the particular religious doctrines that you hold dear, we are threatening. In a good way, I would right. argue, because the United States has fought long and hard to be a place that respects the particular faiths and faithlessnesses that people follow. 
but been well, absolutely stood strong in defense of, of, of individual human dignity. And I think that's very hard for these cultures. And I think you're right. I think what they experience is not a military threat. It is an ideological threat. But the truth is, unless we're going to become them, which God help us if we do, and for the people who don't believe, fine, no God help us, but we're not going to be that, we're going to have to understand we do represent a threat to them. We're going to have to deal intelligently with that threat, hopefully as much as possible and as often as possible through you know, non-military means. But the truth is when someone you know, comes to kill you, then you have to take appropriate action also. Well, you see, then this is both the, the greatness of, of us but also the problem we're facing in that we are – by not by our own desires, but yet by necessity, we are having to confront an enemy that uh, cannot tolerate us and that's aggressing against us just because of who we are. And we want to continue being who we are. You know, we're not going to, we can't conform to, to what they're about. That's Correct. not who we are. So what do you do? I mean, here we are then involved very much in a situation where there's this enemy that wants to kill us and just yeah. did. Uh, because they don't like who we are. They don't like the fact that we support freedom, we support, uh, you know, individual rights, we support all of the things that I think have emerged out of the Judeo-Christian ethos. And, um, you know, they've embraced this idea that they somehow have to hearken back to some idealized time in the past, which never existed, and that they have to force others to, to do this. And anyone who interferes in that is an enemy. What do you do? How should we deal with it? I mean, in a practical sense, how should Washington deal with this? How should President Obama deal with it? The one thing I heard President Obama say that I I thought was enormously helpful was when he was asked about the $1.6 billion in aid that Egypt receives from us. Mm. And he was asked specifically because President Morsi spent far more time decrying the film The Innocence of Muslims, which, again, it's a grotesque movie. Right. I, I would not encourage anyone to go to YouTube and see even the segment that's available, because it's a grotesque, ugly, hateful piece of work. But the fact that he, and he is both a political and a religious leader, because as the president from the Muslim Brotherhood, he's both, spent far more time decrying the movie and almost no time decrying the murder of Ambassador Stevens Right. And President yeah, Obama was asked, in light of that, what did he think about you know, the aid we give and the status of Egypt? And his response was, because of, the president said, because we give that to them as an ally. And he said, well, actually, I don't know that I would classify Egypt as an ally. He said, I wouldn't classify them as a foe. But I think, and I don't know if he said the story's ending is unwritten or we don't know yet, and I think that that is actually a really important thing to be able to do. We tend to jump to identifying other nations too quickly, I believe, as either allies or foes. I think what we need to do is, because the world is in a time of transition, especially in that region, is not be so quick to judge them as either. Typically, the people who see all these allies are seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. Mm. And those who see them all as foes tend to miss a lot of opportunities 
to convert them into allies. I think what we need right now is a kind of clear-eyed, non-naive optimism, by which I mean understand that American strength can help allow, and I don't mean military strength only, economic strength, moral strength, cultural strength, legal strength, can allow many great things to happen in that part of the world. But the truth is, it's not clear who all the players are. We don't know always with whom we are dealing. And the fact that something starts out well does not mean it will end well. And so, in fact, what I think really needs to be done is a reassessment in which we were a whole lot more modest because certain places that we have assumed our foes may not be and many places that we have jumped to call our allies may not be either. And I think we're going to have to figure out how to deploy all of the various resources that this country shares with the world carefully, not always saying, well, we're pulling it from you because you're clearly a foe, we're giving it to you because you're clearly an ally, because the truth is right now nothing is so terribly clear. And that's what the last 48 hours should remind everyone of. Everyone needs to slow down and appreciate that many of the things they would like to assume simply aren't that clear. And the presumption of clarity when none exists is a very dangerous way to make policy. Okay, very interesting. Nice way to, uh, nice thinking there um, as we end the hour segment. Uh, my guest is Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. He is the president of CLOW, National Jewish Center for Learning. Uh, Rabbi Hirschfield, how can people get in touch with you, where are your websites, and all that good stuff? Sure. Easiest way to find me is either at CLAL, C-L-A-L dot org. It's actually the Center for Learning and Leadership. Or you can find me at the Washington Post. Just look for my name. And you can always, because I pretty much live there, find me on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at Brad Hirschfield. Well, I want to thank you so much, Brad, for joining me this afternoon. My pleasure. I look forward to talking to you again sometime. All the best. All right. Thank you. Okay. Brad Hirschfield, again, is the president of CLOW, National Jewish Center for Learning. He's got a Washington Post article up today. Uh, check it out. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. It basically, he asked the question. This is in the chat section where he runs a regular column. Um, is religious violence real? The anniversary of 9-11 is over, but the question remains. Uh, so... Great honor to have uh, Rabbi Hirschfield on, and um, actually, it makes you know to debate him on a few issues religiously. I mean, I know that I have a lot of chutzpah to do that because he's a sitting rabbi, and I'm certainly far from that. But what the heck, you know? That's what talk radio is all about. All right, in the second hour, uh, the syndicated hour, we'll be joined by nationally syndicated radio talk show host Ben Barak. And he's got a very, very interesting and provocative uh, blog site up. Um, he's done some real cutting-edge research on the um, the uh, Libyan embassy attack and murder. So you might want to stay tuned for that. Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. You can check out my blog site at Chuck Morse Speaks or at A Wig Manifesto. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be back in hour number two. Please stay tuned. 
And we are back, hour number two of Chuck Moore Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, along with Blog Talk Radio, and our radio affiliates will be coming up shortly. In this segment, we're joined by Ben Barak, benbarak.com, also a nationally syndicated radio talk show host. Ben, how are you? I'm good, Chuck. How are you? Very well, thanks. Boy, do you have a provocative uh, website here. You think so? Oh, yeah. I mean, check this out. It's... um, it's uh, Barack now at blog, uh, dot blogspot.com, and you've got uh, you've got this video that everyone's talking about that apparently instigated the um, the uh, the uh, violence outside the embassy in Cairo on 9/11. Oh, um, you're, t- you're talking about the Muhammad movie. Yes. Yeah. Which uh, I saw a little bit of, and uh, yeah, it's pretty insulting. But one of the things that caught my attention, and you might want to comment on this was uh, today in the New York Times, the uh, the movie got pretty wide coverage on the front page where they referred to some right-wing forces that made this movie, and then they went on to say nobody knows who made the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's that all about? Who made the movie? Yeah, uh, it, that is still a mystery, but uh, it appears yesterday the Wall Street Journal reported that the uh, Florida pastor Terry Jones uh, has some connection to whoever it is that, that made the film in that he was going to show the 14-minute trailer that you saw that you're referring to uh, on, in his church on September 11th, and that mm-hmm. on September 6th, a guy that he had reached out to, a Coptic Christian, uh, you know, to, to help promote this, uh, he did an email blast to a bunch of Egyptian journalists. And somebody on the other end, the receiving end, translated that that 14-minute that, uh, film into Arabic, and that this is what allegedly got everybody over there all riled up. Uh, so it's 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 curious that that Terry Jones is his name is coming up in all this because he's definitely he's yeah. definitely very provocative when it comes to this sort of thing. So if if that's if there's any truth to that. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, but what we learned yesterday, last night, is that there are two individuals that, frankly, should be questioned uh, by by authorities. They are um, uh, they are affiliated with the Noor Party, N O U R Party over there, which is a Salafist. Salafist is basically mother, Muslim Brotherhood without the mask. Uh, they right. don't they don't hide their intentions, and <laughs> they make up more than 20% of the Egyptian parliament. But this movie is all about, and, and let's make sure that everybody understands, this is not, this is not even you know, open for debate, really. This movie is, is nothing about uh, uh, anything other than wanting to suppress uh, First Amendment right of speech. The guys that, that we have found, uh, Waleed Shabbat actually found the Arabic of this, uh, of this, this person. Uh, two people. One uh, who is is pushing a narrative and, and and is actually on the official Nor Party website as saying that the goal here is to uh, to put so much pressure on the international community that that countries that are non-Islamic enact laws that will prevent the criticism of Islam, that will uh, make it a crime to criticize Islam or or Muhammad or or anything affiliated with. Uh, with Islam itself, and so that's 
what is going on here, and frankly, um, we should be uh, we should be open enough in this in this country to admit that. Well, I mean, first of all, when you say that they want to pass laws that that ban criticism of Islam, it's one thing for them to try to do that inside their own countries, but are they trying to do it in the United States? Yes, uh, absolutely. In fact, the uh, the words from um, uh, one of these two gentlemen, we Wesam is his name, Wesam uh, Abdul Waris. Uh, he he has written here, and he, well, actually he said on a YouTube video on September 9th of all of all times. And let's remember that the the attacks on the embassy in, in Cairo was on the 11th, you know, and that is an act of war on September 11th, 2012. Uh, yeah. But but he said it will hold. That our goal is to hold accountable everyone who insults Islam locally and internationally in accordance with every country's laws. So that's what they're trying to do. And this is really this is really the line in the sand, uh Chuck, because you know, we we've been we've been uh uh you know, tiptoeing around Sharia law as a country and First Amendment and does it can it coexist with the First Amendment and the Constitution? Absolutely not. And this is this is the line of demarcation. We're seeing it right now. Uh when it comes down to Sharia law and these guys wanting to prevent uh, freedom of speech uh, and criticism of their religion, uh, and and we have the Constitution that says we have every right uh, to do so. Now you know you could you could argue uh, discretion and 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 judgment, when, especially when it comes to folks like Terry Jones, but that's secondary. The primary is is that that our Bill of Rights. And that our First Amendment tells us that we are allowed to criticize uh, with our speech, and that that's that's part of our very core. And and what we're seeing here is we're seeing a blatant, flagrant attempt uh, from the, the the Muslim world uh, to to usurp that. And we can't we can't accept it. I mean, you know, it, it, you being in this business, I'm sure you see it, and you get frustrated at, at the fact that people aren't waking up. I do. I know I do. The, if there's a, if there's a, a bright side in all this, and it's hard to find one, it's that that maybe this kind of thing will wake us up to what really is uh, being attempted here. And and let's not forget, uh, in July, just a few months ago, a couple months ago actually, Trent Franks, Representative Trent Franks of uh, Arizona, who is one of the brave, uh, one of the five courageous congressmen, along with Bachman and um, and Louis Gohmert. Westmoreland and uh, and Rooney, who who uh, sent five separate letters to inspectors general inquiring uh, about uh, Muslim Brotherhood infiltration in general, and in particular uh, Hillary Clinton's deputy chief of staff Huma Abedin, uh, in particular, uh, mm-hmm. into our government. Uh, and and but Trent Franks was at a committee hearing in which he uh, which he was inter- questioning. Uh, Thomas Perez, the Assistant Attorney General, and it, it said he he said specifically, "Will you commit right now that you will that this administration will not entertain any proposals that makes it a crime to criticize any religion?" And I, I mean, it should have sent chills down the spine of anybody who who watched this exchange because Thomas Perez, the Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division, said. Uh, he would not. He would not commit to that. And in fact, Franks had to ask oh him several goodness. times. He would not commit to to that question uh, and 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 agreeing with Trent Franks' premise. That that's that's what the uh, Islamic world is doing right now today in the Middle East uh, with with uh, with this uh, this kind of uh, attack. 
This is like a, a hostage yeah, I mean, dynamic, you know, intimidation. It's, this is, it's a sensational situation, actually. And, you know, there have been people who have been harassed in this country by CARE, mm-hmm. which, of course, has been referred to by um, New York Senator Chuck Schumer and uh, California Senator Barbara Boxer, both liberal Democrats, as being a uh, front for Hamas. Yeah. So you have them basically, when when they're confronted with a situation where someone is viewed not criticizing Islam as a religion per se, but criticizing Islamic terrorism, criticizing jihad, and criticizing other political factors, that they are being accused of uh, being anti-Muslim and that they're being sued. I know of one case in particular, and this is public record, where fellow talk show host uh, Michael Graham, who's a pretty mainstream fellow, mm-hmm. was fired from his job in Washington, D.C., for making some very mild comments about Islam. Now he's up here in Boston. And that was after CARE called up his radio station and threatened them with lawsuits. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's amazing. And, you know, CARE uh, just yesterday sent out a tweet uh, and mm-hmm. called the maker of this film um, uh, a right-wing extremist and that right. also identified that film as being responsible for these riots in 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 Egypt and in, in Libya. Well, I'm sorry, CARE just showed its hand there. It shows where it is. And, and, and that it's siding with these Muslim savages over there over uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution. I thought that CARE's objectives were, according to them, were to ensure the equal application of rights in this, in this country under the Constitution towards Muslims. Well, what they're advocating is that non-Muslims or quote-unquote right-wing extremists should not have access to those rights. So that, that, it, it, the mask is off with them, too, and as far as I'm concerned, it's been off with them uh, for quite a while. But, uh, you know, and I think you mentioned Schumer and, um, and, uh, Boxer. and Boxer. It's been a long time since they spoke like that. I think those right. are – yeah, and, and so where they stand today – is is a stark contrast from where they were when they said those things, uh, and I think that that should tell us that that uh, creeping Sharia, as they say, uh, is all has been in place for quite a while now, and uh, and that's an indication of it right there. No, absolutely, and of course this gets into I think the and by the way my guest is Ben Barak the um, he's got a great blog site he's a nationally syndicated radio host you're listening to. Um, Chuck Moore Speaks here at Cyber Station USA Radio Network, <clears throat> Blog Talk Radio. Let me welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPR AM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, as well as Stitchers, which is um, an app which you can download for free and hear this program anywhere in the world on your cell phone. Uh, ben, I think that this seems to me to be a strategy of the groups such as CARE and other uh, radical Islamist groups in that they are forming common cause with the left by mm-hmm. talking about right-wing extremists and demonizing Americans who are not on the left, who the left views as enemies. And um, there, there are two factors here. First of all, it, it, it does demonize uh, conservatives um, by calling them bigots and by getting into stereotypes of conservatives, which are untrue. But secondly, I think that in a more deep sense, there's perhaps some ideological you know, fellow traveling there between 
the left and the radical Islamists. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not saying this is necessarily a conscious thing. I don't think that most liberals and left-wingers celebrate radical Islam or Sharia law or terrorism. But yet, in, in a very broad sense, perhaps they might share certain goals. Uh, you know, there is a certain tendency toward authoritarian political systems. There's a, a, a hatred for the United States. There's a hatred for the state of Israel. There's a hatred for Western democracies that they, they kind of find uh, common cause in. And I think right. that oftentimes uh, an example of that is the lack of vociferousness on the left when you have Islamic terror that reminds me of the same lack of vociferousness on the left when you had Maoism and, and Mao Zedong murdering 30 million people, or, or Stalin, or for that matter, Hitler during the Hitler-Stalin Pact. You know, so, so you have you know, a certain resonance, and uh, as the old saying goes, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I think a lot of it is they're, they're blinded by their own hatred. Uh, they hate uh, Christianity, much of the left does. They hate, uh, you know, uh, conservatives and and you know anything tied to Judeo-Christian uh, religion or faith. And I think they just they're blinded by that. And you've got you've got these Islamists and these um, uh, you know people from the Muslim religion who 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 understand that. I mean, they've been here for a long time. The Muslim Brotherhood started, as you well know, started here in the United States in the in the late 50s, early 60s and the Muslim Students Association uh, as well. And the goal of the Muslim Students Association, which is a brotherhood group, is to, is to, um, gradually, is to teach college Muslim students how to rise through the ranks of power uh, in political structures and systems, and, and that's what they have done. And, and, and so they, they appeal, they can appeal to uh, the left and 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 align with them and get them on board with with what their agenda is. I, I frankly think that the left uh, in this country has been duped in in a lot of ways because once once the the agenda of the Islamists uh, is realized, if it's realized, God forbid, it, it that's when the, the the left will wake up. They always wake up too late. If you look at if you look at Iran uh, in '79, it was it was leftists aligning with. Uh, Islamists to overthrow yes. the Shah, and once the Shah was overthrown and Khomeini, Khomeini was in, the leftists are thrown under the bus. Same thing happened in Egypt. If you remember Wail Ghanim, the uh, the kind of the face of the the social re revolution, the the uh, um, social networking revolution in Egypt. Once once the Mubarak was gone, uh, he was thrown under the bus, uh, and and I think. I think we've got to be aware of that, and, and you and I see this. I mean, it's it's so obvious. It's it's like two plus two is four obvious, and and yet the left just is blinded by something. I, I remember uh, an excerpt from uh, Andy McCarthy's book about the Grand Jihad, in which he he said, and I don't have the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of, the left always overestimates or overrates uh, its its ability to. Uh, to control the Islamists, uh, because the, the left is all about acquiring power, um, but they don't know anything to do. They don't know how to how to how to handle it. They don't know what to do with it. But that the Islamists are all about uh, what they can do with power. So ultimately, when when uh, leftists help Islamists get power, the leftists 
the left has fall away. And if you look at you look at the look at what the left has done to the American uh, government. I mean, look look at look at this administration. It's been an unmitigated disaster. So the left really doesn't know what to do with power sometimes. And the Islamists use that. They they use it for their ends and their advantage, and exploit it successfully in many cases. So you know, conservatives uh, really do need to uh, to wake up in this country for sure. Well, you know, I think what you're describing, and my guest is Ben Barak, the um, he's a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, um, is a phenomenon that goes back with regard to the left because I think the left at its core is an ideology that seeks power. It's all about authority. It's about this idea of individuals controlling others who are supposedly more enlightened. It's an overthrow of um basic notions of morality, a belief in God, a family, and other institutions that foster independence. And what happens in a practical sense, you're absolutely right, once they take power, there's always a bloodbath, and you have one faction that turns on the other, whether it be uh, the Soviet Union with Stalin with the show trials and murdering all the old Bolsheviks, or whether it be any other communist country that's ever existed, where the first people that they get rid of are their own factions within their own uh, you know society within their own coup and then they go after you know various other segments of the population and uh, i wonder if you have any research on this ben because i am doing some research um as a in that i'm writing a sequel to my book the nazi connection to islamic terrorism called the communist connection to islamic terrorism mm. in that what i've discovered and this is information that is easily available it's not i didn't do too much digging we're talking mainstream media you know new york times whatever that a lot of the people that we call radical islamists are actually communists in yeah. islamic garb and i will point to specific examples Putting aside the PLO, which was trained and armed and financed by Moscow and its various offshoots, you had people that were around the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran who were also trained in Moscow and who were also, I mean, in a sense, uh, I think that uh, Moscow and generally, you know, the communist um, edifice created its own religion, Islamo-communism, yeah. uh, that is not normative Islam. Uh, but that is, in a sense, a hybridized form of Islam that is very much mirroring Marxist ideas. And yeah. and that's what we're dealing with here. That's what the, Those are the people that attacked Ameri our American embassy in Benghazi and murdered Ambassador Stevens. Not yeah. normative Muslims. I mean, these are not people who believe in, in Allah or God. These are people who are involved with this uh, militant, uh, communized uh, faith. What do you yeah, think? Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting angle. I hadn't heard that before. Um, but you know, let's just look at, at at Russia. I mean, would would this look? Soviet Union. Russia is 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 in charge. Uh, the people in charge of Russia right now are are Soviet Union holdovers, who I don't think, uh, frankly, have uh, have forgotten. Uh, what happened and what what Reagan did to them? I think there is there is absolutely uh, some uh, some revenge factor there. So when the United States doesn't uh, 
doesn't do well, I think they uh, they enjoy that. There's there's no doubt about it. There's elements of that that government that enjoys that. But you know you you have uh, it, it's it's interesting because the uh, Soviets of the the late 80s. I mean they they were fighting Islamic extrem- extremism too. So there's got to be in in Afghanistan and then the Chechnyans. So they they understand this uh, this Islamic. Uh, threat uh, to some degree, the Beslan massacre and, and, and those kinds of things. Uh, so if, if what you're saying is correct, there's, there's got to be a, a line of distinction there that, that uh, between those kinds of Muslims and the ones that, that uh, the, the, Soviets, uh, are, uh, the Soviets are aligning with, uh, that would be interesting to find where that is. Now, Ben, you've done some research on the Muslim Brotherhood, and you make yeah. a connection between the Muslim Brotherhood. I'd like you to talk a little bit about who they are, but also them and the government that's taken over Egypt and this attack in the embassy in Benghazi. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, the, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is, is, as you probably know, uh, was formed after uh, the Ottoman Empire fell, and uh, it, its goal was to reestablish that Ottoman Empire in over 100 years. Well, that was 1928, and we're, we're rapidly approaching that 100-year mark, and they are on the march. It should be it should be uh, obvious to anyone, and and Mohammed Morsi is the Muslim Brotherhood uh, candidate. I mean, he's now the president of Egypt. And there, here's here's a case in point of what I was talking about earlier with leftists. Leftists did not want the Muslim Brotherhood. They didn't want them to take over, but they removed Mubarak, and the Muslim Brotherhood successfully filled the vacuum. They they have a a, a majority of parliament. They have the largest faction in parliament. They have a Muslim Brotherhood president, and they have well over 20 percent of the uh, the parliament is is of the Noor party, which is Salafist. So that's basically Muslim Brotherhoods on on, on steroids. So you you have this situation in Egypt, and you know you talk about the left aligning with uh, the Muslim world. Hillary Clinton's deputy chief of staff uh, is Huma Abedin. Huma Abedin's family is is up to its neck in Muslim Brotherhood. You you got her brother, her her father is now deceased. Her mother, and her uh, her mother is a leader in the Muslim Sisterhood, which is a hmm. Muslim Brotherhood group. 63 she's one of 63 leaders in the sisterhood and here's here's a little interesting twist to that uh her mother is Saleha Abedin and Saleha uh and Mohammed Morsi the president of Egypt his wife and Saleha are both two of the 63 leaders of the Muslim sisterhood so they're close colleagues so uh, Huma Abedin has been with Hillary since 1996 when she was hired from uh, George Washington University after uh, you know after graduating and and she spent her most of her her childhood in Saudi Arabia uh you know and and this kind of stuff the the fact that she is anywhere near a security clearance uh is uh, is is unconscionable and what we what we hear a common refrain from the people who um who, who side with Huma Abedin and and attack Michelle Bachman, for example, who is who is the the one of the five congressmen, who who has been trying to draw attention to this. Uh, the the common refrain from them is, well, that's guilt by association. Well, the the difference here is that uh, the guilt by association applies when you're talking about a criminal case. You know, you can't convict somebody for having associations uh, with with uh, you know criminals. That, that's the, and nor should you. 
But when you have associations like this, it should absolutely preclude you from getting a security clearance or a job as the Secretary of State's closest advisor. And all you have to do is look at the fruits of this administration. From the time Barack Obama gave his now infamous Cairo speech in 2009 until now, every single solitary policy has been in support of the Muslim Brotherhood, whether it's been in Egypt, whether it's been in Libya, Tunisia, um, and, and now Syria. Uh, we're, we're supporting Muslim Brotherhood forces all across, all across the, the, the Middle East. We've got to start asking ourselves, why is that? To what extent do uh, Muslim Brotherhood um, uh, individuals or, or people sympathetic to the Brotherhood, to what extent uh, do they have power and sway within our government? Uh, the, the, the fact that every single policy uh, of this administration has, has benefited the Brotherhood should, should raise big, bold red flags. Well, well, Ben, I think, first of all, the Muslim Brotherhood has been around in this country for many decades, and they made inroads in the Republican Party, too. I mean, yeah, we know that. that's right. They that's were right. up there in the Bush yeah. administration. I mean, we, I, I saw some of them at the uh, at CPAC um, mm-hmm. a couple of years back when I was there. And uh, we're talking about people who are very, very capable and who are backed by enormous financial resources and who um, I think you're quite right. They have an agenda of um, – not just Sharia law, but um, international uh, caliphate, yep. uh, a, 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 a gradual uh, kind of – it's very similar to the communist movement back in the 1940s in mm-hmm. many ways. You know, it's, they work through subversion, and they, they make their way into uh, the inner, inner power structures of government. But I think it's also clear, and I think you've made the point, that they have seemed to have made – more inroads in this Democratic administration than any so far, yeah. and that uh, there is a connection between that and their great political and military successes over the past couple of years, uh, certainly in Egypt, but also probably in Libya and Tunisia and some other North African countries at least. Yeah. And uh, I guess that this brings us down to the crux of the question. In your opinion, Ben, if you have inform- inside information, that would be great. Uh, is Barack Obama um, a part of it in terms of um, what is his association or relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, I think I think if you chronicle them all and you look at it, you 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 come up with one heck of a profile that it's hard to uh, it's hard to explain away. Uh, for, mm-hmm. for the for for starters, uh, according to Islamic law, he was born a Muslim because his father was right. Muslim. So there, 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 once you start there. Then you you have to at least accept the possibility. I mean, he was registered as a Muslim in, in his Indonesian schools. Uh, and, That's right. And, and he attended he, uh, madrasa in. Right. I have an article about this up in World Net Daily in the archive, and uh, that yes, he uh, his sister was interviewed um, by a reporter in, in Indonesia and said, yeah, we were Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the, the, his mother married a Muslim, an Indonesian Muslim, who was apparently very political. His mm-hmm. father was Muslim. And that uh, I think that Barack Obama talks in his own book, um, which, according to Moranis, who was a very liberal and well-respected uh, biographer of presidents, he he describes the book as virtually a fabrication. But putting that aside, he he says that his he had a religious um, conversion and he became Christian 
uh, in uh, w- due to the tender administrations of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who of yeah. course is a radical leftist, and it happened around the time he was maybe about 30 years old. So there's no mention of his religious orientation before that. Um, I, I don't think he was a practicing Muslim, but I think that it seems that that, that was the uh, the general religion that he was exposed to, most likely. Well, and if, if Jeremiah Wright is responsible for a conversion to Christianity, how do you explain that, that he <laughs> right. would put the manifesto of uh, Abu Marz, uh, Ab, Musa Abu Marzuk, the uh, a leader in Hamas? How would you how would you explain his putting that manifesto in his church newsletter in 2007, long after Obama was allegedly converted? Uh, I mean, it, it defies any and all logic. It's not possible. There's no way somebody like that could be uh, could could be responsible for converting somebody uh, to to Christianity unless he scared you so much that that's where you wanted to go. You know, Ben, what you're saying then this is actually pretty sensational. It is not something that we're going to see covered at all by the liberal leaning mainstream media who is doing everything they can to protect Obama and always has. But um, <clears throat> it, it's been out there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's logical. It's something that ought to be questioned. When you do question it, and I'm sure you've come across this, you become attacked for being the messenger. You know, you're right. under attack, and you're, you know, that that how dare you question this? And this must be because you're right wing. And this is what makes me wonder. I mean, if they have the American people gone brain dead, I mean, what what is going on here? Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a long, uh, a long process uh, that's been. You know, our schools have been infected. Uh, we have become a, a society w- with broken homes. We've become a society that has uh, um, used the television set as a babysitter, and, and Hollywood has, uh, in, you know, the Hollywood films and, and television has infected and infected the minds of our, of our kids. And you know, today, even today, people are more interested in American Idol or what's going yeah. on uh, on on television uh, entertainment. What's going on in Hollywood? I mean, you just look at the look at the YouTube hits of somebody like, uh, gee, I don't know, uh, whatever. Any any. Well, I mean, uh, a good example is that on 9/11, this day, which uh, which 3,000 Americans were brutally is, had their lives snuffed out, including a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have ABC running the Kardashians. Yeah. You know, they have the morning show. Yeah, you know, I mean, and and their their marital problems are some nonsense. I mean, this is or or, or her boob job. I mean, yeah. is this what Americans have? Is this we've all become almost? There's been an infantilization of the American people. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 so indescribable. I mean, those of us who see that the world is literally on fire, those of us who see that are it's 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 truly like being awake. And and having and, and looking at somebody that's asleep and just trying to shake them and them just not getting up. It's it, it's that's that's what it's like, you know. And it, it, there, there's we're not supposed to yell fire in a crowded theater as an example. But what about when the theater is on fire? What right. are you supposed to do then? And and th- there's just there's Americans have been sedated by something over over time now. The one good thing about Obama that I don't know would have happened under Hillary Clinton, as an example, is that he has been so egregious, so ideological, so far left, so in your face that he woke up a, a significant contingent of this country. So I think there's there's reason for hope there. 
Um, right. I don't know that Hillary would have done that. I think she may have been a little bit more politically savvy, a little bit more uh, seasoned. She had a lot more, a uh, lot many more years in politics at that time. But uh, yeah, the the, uh, the 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 media, the left wing media has that that entity, the the whole uh, mainstream media dynamic here. I mean, we can honestly mm-hmm. say that they are responsible for getting Barack Obama elected. And they're responsible, I believe, in large part for what you are talking about, which is the the uh, dumbing down of the American people. The American people rely on uh, uh, the media uh, to give them information, and the information they're getting from a huge swath of the media is nothing but but dreck. It's 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 lies. It's propaganda. It's left wing. It's um, it's MSNBC is basically a ventriloquist dummy for the White House. You, you, you've you've got you, that that in and of itself, I think, may be more responsible um, than than anything in this country mm-hmm. for for the situation that we're in. But yet, then we have a you know the same media that you're talking about, and you're quite right. They are, along with very, very powerful forces in this country, they are determined to reelect Barack Obama. Yeah. And I shudder to think of what a second term uh, would look like for Obama. I mean, I think we'll get over it. I believe this country is stronger than any one administration. But nevertheless, it's going to really be a drag on um, on our way of life and on our freedom, in my opinion. And uh, just an example that I would give of what I think we're up against is how Mitt Romney is being treated. Now, I, I don't. We could get into what you might think of Mitt Romney. I've met him many times. I, I don't know him, but he, Mitt Romney is a normal person. You know, he's not this super hyper ideological driven, you know, bizarre person that wants to change the world. He's a typical, you know, conventional American candidate for president or for high office. And yeah. here he is coming out and making a comment. On the on the uh, evening of this terrible assault in, in, on our embassy in Benghazi, which was new in advance that there was going to be violence, and apparently there was not enough preparation to protect our ambassador, who was taken out and brutally murdered, his naked body dragged through the streets, who knows what else. Yeah. And uh, Romney mentions uh, that uh, he thinks that this might be um, an example of Obama. Very mild comments, you know, that, that, that his... Uh, his policy of appeasement and that his policy of apology and somehow the media i don't know how successful they have been at it but somehow the whole story turns around and the main focus becomes not the fact that we were attacked on 9-11 and that four americans were brutally murdered in an american embassy which is sovereign territory of the united states and which is uh you know, reminiscent of the hostage crisis in Iran. But the whole issue becomes around Mitt Romney and whether did he say this too soon? Did he say it not soon enough? Should he said it here? And underlying that, it really bothers me that the media would suggest that a presidential candidate should not comment on a military situation in the world. That's really chilling. I mean, should George McGovern have not commented on the Vietnam War? I mean, you know, we could turn the tables and look at the on the left side of it. Of course, he should comment. Right, right, and and uh, you know, it's 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 so surreal that that it's become a narrative throughout the mainstream media that it, it really makes you uh, kind of wonder. And I'm actually beyond the point of wondering. I I think that these people are have become their own cult. 
because the, because they they all believe the common the, the, the they all believe the same narrative. They're they're denying reality right before their eyes. They're 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 fighting for Obama at the expense of their country. They have they have no patriotism to speak of if they're if they're siding uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood, who is whose stated goal is to overthrow this country. Uh, it's not a it's not a mystery. Uh, they, they've they've said it repeatedly. Heck, it was uh, it was one of the documents in the Holy Land Foundation trial that that uh, that was introduced yep. into evidence. This is this is not this is not this shouldn't be a surprise to to any of them. It's you're, you're left with they're they're petulant. They're like children. They're like children in adult bodies, and and they're going to face reality. You and I have been sounding alarm bells for quite a while about. This reality coming, we're, we're headed headlong toward it, uh, and and we we've, we've been trying to prevent it. I mean, when the the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, Arab Spring started in early 2011, we knew where it was going. There's no way the administration didn't know where it was going. Although I will say, the uh, the, uh, uh, the they're they're having a difficult time containing it right now. I think mm. I think that they are looking at this situation in the Middle East as, as something that's that's beyond their control. Anytime there's been a uh, in, in in world history that I can tell, there's been a situation where war has broken out. It oftentimes breaks out as the result of uh, events being beyond the control of those who think they can control all events. And right. and that's that that could be where we're where we're headed right now. I mean, this is you, you talk about the uh, the murder of our ambassador in Libya. It's like a uh, it, it, it's, it, it very well could be like the uh, Archduke Ferdinand uh, it, it, yes. all over again, World War One. For the Reichstag fire. You yeah. know, this is, I mean, do the American people understand, first of all, that um, on, on a, just a practical level, how inept this administration was to not put extra um, security in place mm-hmm. in advance of 9-11, knowing what that means? I mean, you know, this is, uh, you know, especially in places like Benghazi, you know, yeah. that uh, what a failure this is. And yet the focus is Mitt Romney spoke too soon. Yeah. Uh, do you think, I mean, it just, uh, it's, it's really almost like an alternative universe in, in that they're going to not discuss, there's a complete media blackout on the issue of Muslim Brotherhood and its influence in the United States. In fact, Barack Obama has a plan to meet the Muslim Brotherhood president of Egypt, and he's not meeting the uh, prime minister of Israel. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, what the heck are the Jews in this country? Don't, don't they, are they brain dead? I mean, I'm, saying this as, I'm saying this as a fellow Jew so I can get away with it. Yeah. But, I mean, what are they thinking? I mean, what about, you know, our regular, uh, you know, uh, besides the Muslim Brotherhood issue, I mean, there's all, also been a complete blackout, as you know, since you also write for World Net Daily, a complete yeah. blackout on the issue of the background of Barack Obama, who he is. Well, you just you just expressed another notch in the belt of uh, uh, in the belt of the profile of of Barack Obama as far as his Muslim Brotherhood sympathies. You just you just nailed one uh, with uh, meeting with with Morsi, but not with Netanyahu. Yes. Uh, incidentally, uh, speaking of the Libya situation, there is uh, in fact it's 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 posted on my site right now a video. Of uh, and it's in Arabic, but you can hear the news report. We, we have video now of uh, there were t- in in Libya uh, during the uh, the storming of the, of the uh, embassy that there mm. were two sets of gunmen, uh, and one of them can be heard saying, "Don't shoot us! Don't shoot us! Morsi sent us. We were mm-hmm. sent by Morsi." Now, if that's if that's true. 
then that would put the uh, the death of our ambassador, uh, put the, his blood on the hands of the president of Egypt, uh, and and that's that's uh, again yeah. we get to act of war, and and you know what do you do when an act of war has been perpetrated against you? Uh, you attack your your opponent in a presidential election. What, what I know what Ronald Reagan did when uh, Libya killed an American military man in uh, in Berlin. He launched missiles. Yeah. He struck Gaddafi's house, killed his daughter. Right. <laughs> you know, right. this is a, it is absolutely you're right. This is an act of war at, by any standards of international law and custom going way back in time when an, an embassy is attacked in a foreign country. That embassy is national is is should sovereign is always territory. viewed as sovereign territory yeah. on lease from the host country and um you, you know this is an attack on american soil and a murder of american our american government officials i mean well, this it's, is it's a 911 yeah. attack i mean it literally yes, it is, is a 911 attack and, and and here and, you have a president of the united states barack obama presiding over this incident the murder of four american personnel the attack on an American embassy that's even worse in many ways than the Iranian hostage crisis that mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter presided over, because at least there, there wasn't any, any nobody died. You know, right. here you have a situation that is like 9/11. It was planned in advance. Uh, I think even the Obama administration is now admitting that, probably because they can't get away with covering that up. That's right. And uh, and yet. Um, are the American people going to still, like, you know, rub their hands together and support Obama? Well, I mean, look, at, is... look, at, look at the Iran situation. One, one, one major difference between Iran and what we're seeing now is the Muslim Brotherhood does not seek uh, national boundaries. It seeks a global caliphate. It seeks to eliminate national boundaries, that Egypt right. and Libya wouldn't have a border between them. And we have Iran. Iran was all nationalistic. It was about it was about overthrowing the Shah so that the Ayatollah could take over in Iran. This is, and we'll, we're seeing it with the attacks on the embassies in Egypt, in uh, Libya, Yemen. Now they're saying there's stuff going on in Morocco. And all of these countries where this stuff is happening is where the Arab Spring took place and, and – uh, Dictators were overthrown, and you know. So what what we're seeing different, and it's what will happen in Syria if if uh, Assad is overthrown. You will see this this coalescing of all of these uh, Muslim Brotherhood elements in these countries uh, together to form a a, a non nationalistic uh, allegiance with each other. So that's and that's that's one of the reasons that I, I, I it just drives me nuts to watch. John McCain and Lindsey Graham talk about arming the Syrian rebels. They, they can't be this stupid. I mean, and literally, right. it's stupidity. They well, they're even worse than uh, than um, Assad. And uh, I, I mean, I disagree with you with regard to Iran. I think Iran also is more than nationalistic. I think they're involved with uh, the same sort of world uh, movement. You know, they've got. Uh, I think Syria is a proxy state of Iran. I think they've oh, made major inroads yep. in Iraq. Uh, you know they've got they've got proxy armies on the borders of Israel with tens of thousands of missiles, namely yeah. Hezbollah and Hamas. Yeah, I I I agree. I I think what what I, what I was saying was that more in in 1979 it was more about a sure. nationalistic uh, you know uh, deal. Well, I think that the people the people in that country thought it was a nationalistic yeah. deal, but the the Ayatollah and the Mullahs they were always into a world revolution. I mean they 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 view a. You know, them as the vanguard of a um, 
of an Islamic slash communistic revolution. Well, there's no uh, doubt controls. about it. They've, they've all but annexed Iraq at this point. That's right. Um, and uh, and and we we are responsible. Um, you know, uh, it's it's something, but uh, <laughs> I, it's it's easy to say in hindsight. But man, going into no, Iraq, look, I was a supporter a of the Iraq War, but you know, as you say, in hindsight, you kind of wonder if um, Iraq might have been better off with a strongman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like uh, Saddam Hussein, would he have been better? I mean, Christians were definitely safer under Hussein than they are now in Iraq. Which isn't saying much. Yeah, yeah, really. What do, what do you have else coming up, Ben? What's what's coming up on your show? Oh, well, uh, I have a, a brand-new book that I just uh, got uh, published. It's called Unsung Davids, uh, Ten oh. Men Who Battled Goliath Without Glory. And, uh, yeah, check it out at Amazon if uh, if, if you're interested. Well, uh, no, this is great. I mean, maybe have your publicist send me a copy. We could do some more programming. Okay, awesome. awesome. Great we'll stuff. Be- all right, Ben Barak, uh, again, benbarak.com, and where can people listen to your program, Ben? Yeah, uh, well, we're, we're on uh, down here in, uh, in central Texas, and we stream the show live from the website, uh, dot com. Great. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for joining All right. me. All right, Chuck. Nice talking to you. Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. What a program today. I'm really starting to get on a roll here. I'm just beginning my solo radio thing, and it's getting better and better every day here. Three, four, you're welcome to join the conversation, by the way, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. You know, as much as I enjoy the conflict and the the um, the battle of uh, left-right radio, there is something refreshing about doing just regular good old-fashioned right-wing radio, <laughs> or, but, but also having liberals on from time to time. I, I think it's safe to say that Rabbi Brad Hirschfield is a liberal. He was my guest in the first hour from the noon to one, uh, the president of CLAL, National Jewish Center for Learning, and Rabbi, the rabbi and I had a pretty good conversation that got not only into the political situation in Libya and Egypt and also Israel with regard to the West Bank and Gaza and his past experiences as a, uh, as a, as a resident of, of Hebron, which is, of course, uh, in, uh, in the West Bank, but also spiritual issues of which, of course, I have to defer to a sitting rabbi given the fact that my knowledge is, is, is a thimble compared to his. But nevertheless, um, I, I don't mind mixing it up and getting people thinking about things, the spiritual and theological, as it were. In hour two, Ben Barak was with me. He is a blogger, an author, uh, writes for WorldNet Daily, which I've also written for, and he's got a syndicated radio program. I think Ben and I are going to probably hook up fairly regularly and and kind of work together on various projects in terms of building our on-air presence. So there's some of that kind of stuff in the works. You have to do that kind of thing in this business in order to um, in order to achieve anything, you know? I mean, that's the name of the game. 
Obviously, the main topic on both counts with both of my guests is analyzing and trying to understand this terrible situation with the murder of our ambassador, Christopher Stevens, and three other American personnel, uh, Sean Smith, I think we have one other name. And um, this is, uh, you know, something that is appropriate to discuss. It was obviously a planned attack. It happened on 9-11. for whatever reason, our embassy was caught unawares, uh, even though there was information that indicated that something was happening. And this has triggered a uh, attacks on Americans throughout the Middle East. Um, my question to Rabbi Hirschfield, and we only touched on the answer, was why do they hate us? What did America do to Libya? What did America do to Egypt? These are sovereign, powerful nations. They're oil-rich in the case of Libya. No one is threatening them. No one is calling for them to be abolished. Um, There's been nothing but attempts to to reach out with an olive branch of peace and to engage with them as one would engage with any other civilized country. So, I mean, what's going on here? You know, it's it's really, you know, something that um, requires a lot more thinking by people that are a heck of a lot smarter than I am but something that I intend to look into anyway. Here's an article. This is the lead story today in the Drudge Report. White House clarifies Obama's statement that Egypt is not an ally. It says here, and this is something that uh, Rabbi Hirschfeld made reference to. And by the way, I agree with Obama. I don't think Egypt is our ally at this point. President Barack Obama didn't intend to signal any change in U.S.-Egyptian relationships relationship last night when he said Egypt is not an ally, the White House told the cable today. In an interview with Telemundo Wednesday night, Obama said that the U.S. relationship with the new Egyptian government was, quote, a work in progress, and emphasized that the United States is counting on the government of Egypt to better protect the U.S. embassy in Cairo, which was attacked by protesters on September 11th. Quote, I don't think that we would consider them an ally, but we don't consider them an enemy, unquote. They are a new government that is trying to find its way. They were democratically elected. I think that we are going to have to see how they respond to this incident. Gee, I admire that. I think Obama's right about that, and I think Rabbi Hirschfeld made the point. You know, let's not uh, totally throw our lot in with them, but let's also not totally throw them under the bus either. You know, I mean, George Bush, right after 9-11, he said, you know, uh, Islam is a religion of peace. And, uh, you know, we're not, you know, which was necessary. He had to say that. You know, do we want to have World War Three? You know, the question, I think that's actually good uh, diplomatic thinking. Uh, you know, you want to sort of assess the situation and see how it goes. So, I mean, the Drudge Report has this up like it's some kind of a scandal. I actually, and they refer to it as a gaffe. I don't think so. I mean, even though I don't support uh, President Obama's re-election campaign, he is still our president, and I agree with him on this. You know, this is a crisis, and I think he's handling it well, at least in this regard. I mean, there are some other things we could talk about. Uh, It says here, quote, That comment had Egypt watchers scratching their heads, especially since technically Egypt was designated as a major non-NATO ally in 1989, when Congress first passed a law creating that status. 
which gives them special privileges in cooperating with the United States, especially in the security and technology areas. White House spokesman Tommy Vitor told the cable Thursday that the administration is not singling a change in that status. I think folks are reading way too much into this, Vitor said. Ally is a legal term of art. We don't have a mutual defense treaty with Egypt like we do with our NATO allies. But as the president has said, Egypt is a longstanding and close partner of the United States, and we have built on that foundation in supporting Egypt's transition to democracy and working with the new government. Vitor referred to Obama's Wednesday phone call with Mohamed Morsi, during which Obama pressed the Egyptian president to ensure the safety and protection of U.S. personnel and facilities in Egypt. Morsi agreed to do so, according to White House statement on the phone call. The president said that he rejects efforts to denigrate Islam, but underscored that there is never any justification for violence against innocents and acts that endanger American personnel and facilities, the statement said. President Morsi expressed his condolences for the tragic loss of American life in Libya and emphasized that Egypt would honor its obligation to ensure the safety of American personnel. Well, you know, I'm glad that uh, he is saying that publicly, although, according to my guest just now, Ben Barak, there is some evidence that some of these terrorists were sent there by Morsi, uh, who is the um, uh, Muslim Brotherhood president of Egypt. Um, that remains to be seen. You know, I, I mean, I think that we need to have perhaps cooler heads right now uh, and uh, defer judgment on that. Uh, let's not rush into, um, you know, uh, waving the bloody shirt quite yet on that one. Uh, you know, it's um, let's see what happens. Anyway, um, that's uh, that's what's going on. That's the big, big story on the Drudge Report. Uh, I don't think that it, it should be a, such a big story. I mean, it seems to me that um, President Obama probably is, is doing in this regard what is appropriate. Um, and when, when he does, we should applaud, you know, regardless of whether we support his re-election campaign, which I do not, I'm glad that he's um, taking somewhat of a standing back stance. Um, let's see what else is going on. Election manipulation. Uh, this is um, the accusation being made against uh, Ben Bernanke, who is pumping money into the economy right now by creating more bonded debt to the tune of $40 billion a month. The Fed is making available bonds at the New York Stock Exchange for investors, and by doing so, they are creating debt and pumping money into the economy. This, I suppose, is a way to sort of paper over the fact that um, there's an economic slowdown. Here's another quick story. We have a few more minutes here. This is Drudge Report, which I look at pretty much at least once or twice a day, and I, I, I really like it. Uh, new ad asked Jewish voters, is this still your Democratic Party? <laughs> you know, look, Barack Obama in the last election, I think, got 88% of the Jewish vote. Um, I think that this time around, if he even, if uh, Mitt Romney can even shave off 
two or three percentage points of that vote, I think that could make a huge difference. In my opinion, he can do it. I can report personally that I've heard comments made amongst my own liberal Jewish friends and at my own liberal Jewish community here by liberals who would have their hands fall off before they would vote against a Democrat, saying that they're not sure about Obama. So, you know, these are people who might either stay home or they actually could do the unthinkable, and that would be vote for Mitt Romney. It's not impossible, believe me. I think it's more than probable. I think it's quite plausible. This new ad scheduled to run in Florida makes the case that President Obama has pushed the Democratic Party to embrace anti-Israel policies. Uh, In the coming days, the Emergency Committee for Israel, a pro-Israel advocacy group, will release an ad entitled, Who's Democratic Party? Now, of course, we have to look at who is behind this so-called Emergency Committee for Israel. I I can investigate that. Um, and maybe have some answers tomorrow, but um, that's that's a reasonable question to ask. The spot, because someone's paying for this, the spot, which will air during Sunday's football game between the Miami Dolphins and the Oakland Raiders, in what is being described as a significant ad buy, accuses Obama of leading his party to weaken the U.S.-Israel alliance. Coming on the heels of the Democratic controversial omission and contentious reassertion of language in the party platform, declaring Jerusalem as Israel's capital, the ECI ad asks voters, quote, is this still your Democratic Party? Following footage of DNC delegates vociferously booing the pro-Israel delegation, and that is on tape, and it's ugly. The ad reminds viewers of the critical swing state that the Obama administration has on multiple occasions, refused to state that Jerusalem is Israel's ECI Executive Director Noah Pollack told the Free Beacon that ECI wants Democratic voters to ask themselves if they are comfortable with the party's direction under Obama. Anyway, that's the story for today. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at one p- at 12, at uh, noon, Uh, noon p.m. to 2 p.m. right here at Chuck Moore Speaks. Check out my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks. Thanks for listening, everyone, uh, and have a great afternoon. Take care. This thing is jammed. There it goes. I'm using a very old computer here.